episode 144 above ground podcast with josh rivadal disclaimer the hosts of this podcast timothy patrick and will foley are by no means medical professionals however having lived experience with mental illness themselves they have gained useful perspectives on common mental health issues that some of us struggle to overcome on a daily basis by sharing their stories they hope to create connection by creating connection they hope to help you find your purpose and through purpose we can all begin to build the foundation for positive mental health. This is Above Ground Podcast. Are you ready to lace up your boots, throw up your horns, and jump into the pit? Then let's stomp the stigmas of mental illness. It's time for Above Ground Podcast. Now, Will Foley and Timothy Patrick. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Above Ground Podcast. Above Ground Podcast. Because you can't serve below. This morning, we are joined by Josh Rivadal. And Josh is a, uh, his pedigree is amazing, man. Uh, Josh is a storyteller, an author, a playwright. He is the founder and creator of Changing Minds, which is a mental health curriculum that spans K through 12. And he is also the creator of the I'm Possible Project, uh, he's a playwright. He does it all, man. Josh, thank you so much for joining us this morning, man. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm doing really well. I'm, I'm one eye is more sleepy than the other, like, but I'm cool. I'm good. I'm in good shape. I'm keeping that eye open. Uh, glad to be here, fellas. Will, Tim, man, this is cool. I'm really interested in getting to your story and why you've created these programs and and stuff i'm really interested in hearing about the the who's the what's the when's the where's the why's yeah yeah i guess all in all like i'm just i'm sort of a creative guy i grew up um not my life anymore but i grew up in a church and my only you know i i just i love singing i loved acting uh, i saw my parents singing i was always really interested i couldn't never figure out why all the other little boys weren't excited about that stuff and you know and, and even some of the little i was like what this is dope. This is amazing. And it was like, no, we we don't want to do this. I'm like, this is anyway. So I loved I always loved that. Right. I always loved that kind of stuff. And then and then it became my escape. You know, it became it became my gang. It became my way to escape. And uh, as an adult, I've, I've been in environments where I've seen where people haven't found that either escape or that camaraderie or whatever. And I'm like, that could and, and they're in trouble. They're not doing one. I'm like, that could easily be me without a doubt, because I, you know, uh, I was fortunate to have found some sense of purpose as a young person, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in a, in a, in a relatively healthy, but also abusive environment. My, my dad was the abusive parent and, uh, emotionally and, and physically, um, alternating most of it was emotional and that you don't have, I didn't have the words for that, but that was, that was just, that was really devastating. And it was, it was hurtful. It was hard. Uh, and it's had a profound effect on my mental well-being and mental health and hygiene uh, and and probably has even contributed to or helped develop two mental illnesses, depression and anxiety in my life. But that being said, you know, I'm fortunate to have done the work as an adult, but I didn't do that work as a kid because I have those words. Right. So um, so a reason to escape. Right. And so fast forward, fast forward. Uh, high school, college, I'm, 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 I'm getting into playwriting and professional acting and, um, and really excited about that and start working and doing, you know, even voiceover and a lot of theater and um, still trying to find my way in the world, moved to New York City, um, 
commercials and, 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 and also like kind of waiting tables on the side and, and really extricating myself from the family, not really realizing that I didn't have to separate, separate myself from everyone just from that, from, from the one person. Um, and so I, I, I kind of left them all behind and, um, age 25, my, my parents break up, my dad, um, dies by suicide and he's not the person in the family. His, his dad died in the 1960s by suicide. And it was never something we talked about in the home. In fact, when I was about 12 and my sister was 13 and my brother's about five years younger, so he was pretty little at that time. But my mom pulled us aside and told the two of us in secret, uh, because he didn't want us to know our dad didn't want us to know. Uh, he was ashamed. He was embarrassed. There's tons of stigma, right? And so that, you know, and then learning that day and then and sort of being explained like this might be why your dad's angry and abusive, but more so don't tell anyone, keep it a secret. Well, that led me to start keeping secrets, um, health, health secrets, mental health secrets, vulnerable secrets that would have meant nothing in the very beginning. But when you keep them a secret for a while, they own you. Right. So um, that's been a, a, a life of unlearning. But anyway, so when I lost my dad, you know, uh, I didn't like him, but I loved him. And so I felt all these different feelings. I was sad, relieved, angry, hurt, uh, joyful. And, I, and some of that didn't feel OK. And I didn't know I was allowed to feel all that stuff. And so then guilt came in and um, for the next couple of years, like, I, you know, it's so almost two years, like pr professional life started to take off again. Personal life was taking a nosedive because I think you probably know and you're living the life, you're walking the talk as I was listening to your episodes earlier. Um, you know, uh, when, when trauma like that happens, lots of other residual things show up as well. It's like this comet, right? And there's these tailwinds, right? Um, and, and those tailwinds are things to, 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 to prepare for and to be affected by, but I still didn't have the words. I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't have, you know, what I'm connecting to now. And so, um, my, my, my personal life just took this nosedive mom, uh, and I weren't doing well. Uh, I felt betrayed and lied to and, and lost. So I extricated myself from that relationship. Girlfriend of six years left me as well. I wasn't a healthy partner. And so almost two years after I lost my dad, I, beginning of 2011, I was six weeks shy of 27, darkest period of my life. I didn't know that a lot of major change all at one time can be a catalyst for suicidal ideation. And it certainly was for me on top of two undiagnosed yet treatable mental illnesses. Treatable? Yes. Didn't know that at the time. So what happens when things aren't treated? Your kidney disease, your heart disease, your depression, your, it'll wreak havoc and it can become fatal in worst cases, right? Um I started thinking nobody loved me or cared about me and the world would be better off if I weren't in it. Now that's not, my brain was sick, right? You can have a sick kidney, you can have a sick pancreas. I had a sick brain at that time. And so I was having a psych ache, right? Back aches, knee aches, I was having a psych ache, um, manageable, treatable. And I, and I had this epiphany though, uh, that I didn't wanna die. I just didn't wanna feel the way, the emotional pain that I was feeling. And so that didn't make life any easier in the moment but it was like, oh my God, like I'm not messed up or crazy or sinful or bad or weird or a wimp or anything like that. I'm, I'm a person. And so I still was reticent about getting help. And I ended up reaching out, like it took me a little bit to figure out who or where or what I was going to do. And, and in the meantime, I was in tremendous physical and emotional pain because the two can affect each other in a big way. Um, so I reached out to my mom, the last person in the world that I wanted to speak to. And I, and I actually, I, I think I figured out why I did that some years later. I was reading this book about uh, Iwo Jima, and the author was talking about, it was a big battle in World War II, and he was talking about how 
um, when young men, because that was all who could fight at that time, uh, women couldn't, other genders couldn't, um, it was when they knew they were dying, they would call out for their mothers, like almost always. And that's where I was in a different context, of course, but I felt like I was at the end. Right. And so I was like, I need, I, I'm going to go back to the beginning. I didn't have the words for that at the time. I kind of figured that out later. So she became my mom again, helped me, um, which was great. And then that provided a spark to like, Hey, where am I going? What am I doing? Um, I, I can do differently. And my, my, I was still in a lot of pain, but I was like, maybe if she believes in me and, and I kind of believe in me, maybe I can find these other resources and things and help. And so I, you know, it was de-isolating and reaching out and curating my, my, my world in a sense, like the people who I was reaching out to and listening to and, and being present with and hanging with. Right. So if I wanted to be a better son or friend or researcher, I'd find those people in my world and be like, okay, I need to take that on because you are the company that you keep. Creativity, spirituality, counseling therapy was a, a good move for me back in because I was back in school, so I got it for free. Um, uh, and then to I realized to feel whole again, I needed to be in the service of other people. And that was a process. And so recovery felt like it was about nine months to me to not just be me again, but to be 2.0. So I wouldn't get back to that place. And so I can learn how to walk and be different in the world. Um, and, and so I was like, well, how am I going to show up if I'm going to be of service? What am I going to do? Am I going to be a crossing guard or a lunch lady? Like, how am I, what am I going to do? You know, and then, am I going to have to retire from show business? And so after a four week retirement, um, I came back and I was like, man, I'm going to put the creative work and the mental health suicide prevention work together and I, at the in so in between losing my dad and doing this work, uh, this was about 22 months. I had written and performed a one man play, uh, and it was 16 characters. And I sang it in it. it. It's about an hour long, beginning, middle, and an end. I did it in New York. It got a good good reviews, good run. People were excited about it. Uh, I was too. And part of it, so it's part of, partly my life. Most of it's a comedy. It's a coming of age. And the end talks about my dad's suicide. Like this five seven minutes. People were really connecting with me on it like survivors of loss. And so I was like, wait a minute, I have this tool that could, I could flip it on its head, get trained and pair it, pair it with suicide prevention and mental health concepts and education. And so I did, I had this idea. I was like, where do I go? What do I do? So I reached out to all these different colleges and was trying to pitch it. And like, I think this could work. And nobody knew what the hell they were doing, what, what I was doing. And I kind of didn't either. And, and I finally figured it out. And I, and I, the college I was at was the one that picked it up. And the psych department and a, and a psychology student group sponsored it and I had it filmed and, and I and I had some 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 mentorship on it and and over, you know, some oversight and we did it. I did it. It was a three three part piece like the the play, the education, the Q&A. And I didn't know how it was going to go. And everybody left. And one kid waited around to the very end and was like, hey, thanks for doing this. I've been depressed as long as I can remember and suicidal for a couple of months. I thought these were like normal and they're not now I know. And so I'm going to go get help at the counseling center. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like in my head, I was like, if I, if, if I could help this one guy, all this stuff that I went through was, I mean, I don't want to do it again, but it was worth it to help this one guy. And so I kind of, kind of got addicted from there. So I started pitching that program and that fall 2011 four presentations in four, three or four States, the next semester, 17, and since then, I've done uh, almost 420 presentations in four countries, 41 states, four Canadian provinces, two states in the capital territory in Australia, 
east of England. And then I, I've developed other programming. Like, so I'm also a stand-up comic. And so I'll do stand-up with it now um, where it's about me. It's safe. It's inclusive, but it's, it's stand-up, you know? Um, and then I've, you know, this curriculum, I've got a, I'm a co-author on some peer reviewed journal papers on trauma, on chronic illness, on suicide loss. Um, I'm, I'm moving in the direction of pairing mental health and food together. So I'm in the, uh, sort of a longer term process of putting a mental health themed cookbook together. Um, I have, I have an idea around, um, that I'm, I'm going to start cultivating lavender because it's a cash crop and it's a way that I think I can feed the community twice, like infusing it with food pairing it with with mentally healthy foods and things like that. So this is a very new thing. This part is new. Um, doing some workplace stuff now, um, uh, doing stuff with dentists now, a lot of dentists, which is not like, a, it's it's just continuity of care. You know, it's more about sure. them being a resource. Um, and there's other stuff going on too, but like, you know, I'm, I'm having these kinds of conversations and that's fun and exciting. Um, I've got a, a, a one other thing that I'm excited about and then we'll get to, you guys, because it's been all me. Um, but uh, it's about man, that's what it's about. <laughs> um, this um, uh, I've got another book in development, but it's a middle grade fantasy novel, and it's got mental health themed concepts and social justice concepts sort of underlying. Um, and all the spells are in Spanish, and and the main character has lives with panic attack and anxiety disorder, and uh, and just sort of some some healthy concepts around that. So it's very mainstream with these like, you know, so I just see it as another avenue to have a healthier, different, better conversation around this, this stuff. So that's me, man. Dude, that's what it's, that's what it's all about. Wow. So much, wow. there was so much, there was so much wrapped up in there, man. Um, yeah. Thank you. First of all, I just want to say thank you for opening up, being vulnerable and thank you for the work that you do, man. Do you do a lot of stuff and uh, boy, it's, it's great to hear, man. It's super great to hear. Thanks, brother. It's good to connect with you guys, too, man. We're like spokes in this wheel and like, you know, we keep it going around by feeding each other, too. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you just from hearing some of that stuff, both I, I know Will and I, you know, it, we definitely relate to a lot of that, what you said. So you've come from uh, an emotional, physical, traumatic life to re, uh, to having a purpose at a young age, which that creative drive gave you that purpose. And, and I, dude, I related so much to everything. I want to know from you, did, did the creative part ever suffer because of your mental illnesses? Did it, did you, did you lose faith in yourself at any time? Did you, obviously you went through a really hard time where you were thinking about dying by suicide yourself. So you obviously had lost faith in yourself somewhere along the lines was it did it take your confidence did it take your ability to see any way out that's a great question wow um that's one i haven't been asked i think indirectly it's affected the art and the creativity for sure because there have been bigger stretches where when when like the way that my depression and anxiety will show up sometimes is that they they make a difficult life situation a lot worse uh, they can, if I don't keep them in check, they can make it a little bit worse. And, and if I don't play with them and talk to them and wrestle with them and, and love them, uh, then, then, then it definitely will make it a lot worse. And there are times when I've known it and times when I haven't. So for sure, like there's been a couple of big, bigger couple of year stretches in my life where I've been creative, but not to the level where I'm like, 
really able to do it to, you know, as often as frequently and as much as I want. And that provides me joy and, and healing and hope. And, and just as an outlet, um, you know, I went through a divorce and uh, a couple of years ago and that period of time, it was the whole, the, almost the whole relationship was kind of painful. And there's a lot that goes into that. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with the person that I was married to. It's a lot of the extenuating circumstances. So, um, but that, but my, I wasn't wrestling as much as I should have with, with those, with the illnesses and with, you know, uh, at the time, and it was just a lot of tra trauma. And so, yeah, man, my, my creativity certainly suffered. And, um, but yet that life vest, that, that, um, that life preserver is always there. It's always within reach, right? For me. So, um, so it, as soon as, as soon as I started getting out of that, just as that one, as one example, like that time period, I, I noticed myself grasping onto it and I was doing, and I was like, all right, 10 minutes a day of writing, you know, five minutes a day. And even if I sit there and look at the screen, at least I'm, I'm being consistent with something that I love and enjoy. So yeah, it certainly does. It can affect it. But I think, I think part of that is making, engaging in the creative muscle memory rather than I have to be great. Just make it muscle memory. Well, and it's interesting how you talk about the dance with the demons, man, because I, I speak very similar to you in that regard, because I, I've made friends with a lot of my demons and, and listening to you and uh, Tim and I have had a lot of conversations about therapy, and I believe everybody should be in therapy at least once in their lives, because everybody has some shit to work through. It doesn't matter what it is. So I, it's interesting how you came to figure out that you didn't have the language as a youth to speak about your emotions. And I kind of wanted to touch on that. Was that part of the reason for forming the curriculum of your program? Was it to give other people language? Did you figure that out through your, all your emotional intelligence training that you didn't have the language and that kind of proceeded to give you the language? It was some of that, right? So there's, there's like business, and then there's like art and then there's like wanting to do good in the world. And so, yeah, part of it was because I realized that young people, well, first of all, like I was getting a lot of requests and like, I, I, I can't be everywhere. And so I was like, all right, I'll create something that, you know, where I can teach other people how to teach it. Right. So that was like one thing. And then I also realized like, we're just not getting to kids young enough. Right. Um, and, and, and case in point, like, so we, you know, kids have different language, but they're really smart and they get it right. And and we often like will lie to kids, usually from a good place, but it's not healthy to do that. And so people sometimes ask me and just giving an example, like, you know, how do you how do you talk to the little people in, in your world about emotion or about even the things that you've been through? Right. Because like because I went through stuff and they lied to me about it. Um, my grandpa, my you know, these other things. Right. Um so, all right, so cool. So the way I talk to my five-year-old niece, when she, if she, she, she has asked me about her grandfather, my dad, I'm like, grandpa's brain was sick and that's why he died, you know? And, and he, didn't, he didn't know how to ask for help. And so when you get angry or when you throw a, you know, a tantrum or something, you know, just say, I need help, Uncle Josh. And then we, you know, we'll figure it out together, you know? And so that's language that she can understand and I'm not lying to her, right? So, yeah, so we need to find different ways, healthier ways to talk to our little people and to, and to also empower them to find language for themselves. Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, and, and the brain, right, isn't done developing until 25, 
26, 27, somewhere around that time. So, but we can prepare these kids for that time. And we can also prepare them by teaching them how to love, self-love, self-care, self-compassion, which isn't something that I learned how to cultivate for myself at that little age either. So, yeah. Yeah. How did you, how did you start this, the, the changing minds? How did you like get it into full effect? You know, did you, did you have these, um, booklets or whatever and, and kind of get them out to schools or did you go there and, and kind of just kind of sell it, you know, per se? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, it's an ongoing thing, but it's, um, but it was a matter of like, you know, a couple of things, right? So it's, I had to test it first. So I tested it in a, in a bunch of different environments with, cause I've, I've gotten to know a, a fair amount of people at this point in the, in the educational environment through mental health over the years. So I was like, all right, Hey, um, I know we've worked together before, or, Hey, we're buddies on some level. Can, can I test this out at your school or can you teach this on my behalf? And this is how you do and what you do. And then from there, it's like, um, you know, if, if I've worked with them or worked and they are like, Hey, I wish we had something more. That's an easy, that's an easy add on upsell, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really kind of an extension of my speaking work. I haven't, I haven't gotten to the place where I'm like, you know, doing inbound traffic and, and marketing funnels and stuff like that kind of cause I hate it. And also cause I don't have the time, but I would, and I probably should, but yeah, so it's just kind of been an or, a little more organic, um, at the moment. I see that you're assist trained and everything. And a lot of people don't know what assist is. Can you explain what assist is? Yeah, I love assist. So it's applied suicide intervention skills and training. So A-S-I-S-T, um, leave off the last S for savings. Um, but uh, so dumb. So yeah. uh, <laughs> remember those mattress commercials? Yeah, so, right. Um, well, you've spoken like a true stand-up comedian trying to get the joke <laughs> out of it, man um so it's uh it's a it's a it's done by living works which is a, an organization out of canada and so they have the canadian version the u.s version they might even have an australian version but um but basically it's a two-day eight hour eight hour day training and um it's it's all about suicide intervention you know helping someone being a, i guess a pseudo kind of a gatekeeper right so you're the safe person you're you know it's it's all it's so it's all about intervention rather than prevention right so intervention's like you're at the point where somebody's in that place you suspect they're in that place prevention is a lot of things prevention is food insecurity homelessness you know helping prevent food insecurity homelessness because this is a whole layered thing right and we often focus on the individual like it's their issue or they're struggling i'm like yes that's all true but there are things that we can do systemically that can prevent the severity of people diving into severe hopelessness. So anyway, two, eight, two, two, eight hour days, love the training. Uh, I'm a big fan. I, it's hard to get people for two, eight hour days. So there's other stuff out there. And actually, so the suicide prevention module of, of what I do is sort of a direct response to that idea that people don't have eight hours a day for two days, but they have, an hour and a half or two in a single day and they can sit through that and you get the drive by educate. You're not going to get all the stats and the figures, but you'll get the basics is, which is what really what we need. We need the basic CPR. Go back to sweeping things under the rug. Um, 
because it's interesting that you use the language about being lied to because it's funny because and it's not funny. It's kind of ironic because we're in in the holiday season and we have all these traditions that we upkeep for kids. And we try, you know what I mean, to try to give them hope. And I, and I think that there's good things in there. I, I, I want to know, know how you feel now as a grown up. And and I'll use that term loosely because I'm almost 50 and I'm not grown up, man. And I, I, you know, I've realized that I had a lot to learn to be a man and I'm just learning that now, man, very late in life. And how, how do you view not being able to talk about your stuff now as you did when you found out about a lot of things? And like, what did that do to your world? Like, did it shatter it? Did it? I, I don't, I know, you know, where I'm going with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think on a, on a cerebral level, uh, I don't think at the time when things were revealed that, that my world was shattered, but I think my body felt it and it lived in my body. I think in my brain, I didn't know what to do with that information um, because everything was happening so fast. And I didn't have the cognitive skills, I think, to process all that. What I can say now, and, and the work that I've done now, is more like, hey, little Josh, you know, because I was little at the time, and there's that little voice that lives inside me, and you got to take care of that little guy and protect him, too, even now. But, um, you know, you were doing the best you could, and the little kid inside the people that were lying to you and and you know they were trying to protect themselves and you too um that just happens to be part of their journey and part of yours and how the two of you or the three of you or whatever intersected and so um to me i think it's i can be compassionate to all the players in it and use it as motivation to do healthier for the next generations and, and at least the ones that i can directly and indirectly affect so it was, it, I mean, yeah, for sure. Like it was, it, it, it didn't feel good. It was like, wait a minute, what? And I think in the lead up, cause like, so like being, I knew I was being lied to about my grandfather, even like younger than 12. I was like, yeah, right. Like, and at one point it even did the math. And I know this is one example, but like in, in terms of that thing being, being lied to, but I just remember like he died in 1966 and I was told that he died of shrapnel. It's like, that is the longest battle of shrapnel that I have ever heard of in my life. Also, what's shrapnel? Um, but, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, but, so, there, you know, I th but I think the body don't lie, man. The body don't lie. You feel it in your body. Yeah. Yeah, we've we've been discovered. I've discovered this in the last few years. Like, Tim and I have turned each other on to so many books and different things. And uh, to find out that trauma lives in the body and and to really like when you read The Body Keeps the Score, which is one of the best books ever written about trauma in the body. Um, it's it's crazy how different things manifest and physical symptoms and are really just emotional problems. And although it's hard now, because I look at everything like that now. <laughs> mm. I got, a, I got a question actually with um, kind of related to your father. Um, one, how old was he when he died by suicide? He was 60. He had just turned 60. Yeah. And did you guys, cause I know you would, earlier on in the conversation, you had, you had said it was a little, um, your childhood was a little rocky. 
we'll say. So did you reconcile with him or did, did that affect his passing at all with you? Like, did it affect you, you know, personally more so? Um, yes and no. I think I was mourning what could have been. Um, I don't know that we exactly reconciled because I wasn't ready at the time. I wasn't ready. I didn't understand that forgiveness is for you and not for the other person. Um, that's, that's my view on it at least. Um, you know, so I, I was still carrying around some heavy stuff when he passed away around him. And so, uh, uh, we hadn't really reconciled. I mean, he, he kind of had said a little bit, like, I love you a couple of times, once or twice, like towards the end and express some appreciation. But to me, it also was like, you want to be my friend now that you have nothing left. Like, I don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm here for that. And I, it made me mad. I was like, so I'm your last resort now, but you treating me like shit and made fun of me and beat me as a kid. Like we don't get to make that. You don't get to just flip that dude. Um, so I was really upset about that. And I had heard that he had given one of my siblings an apology and that, and that didn't bother me. I was happy that they got it, but I was like, well, I never got that. So I guess whatever, but that has also has nothing to do with me. Um, so I think, you know, it's kind of wild. So I, I, I'm not really a, a, a huge believer in like metaphysical. I mean, I kind of am, but I'm, I'm trying to keep my distance and play it cool. But, um, I, uh, <laughs> I, I went to see a medium recently, which isn't like a fortune teller or anything. It's like somebody who like deals with energy or whatever. Cause I had met somebody who had a couple of people in my life over the past few years that I've had good experiences, eye-opening experiences, like, all right, well, I'm in Wisconsin. It's half price than when I was in LA. So I got the cash. I'll, let's see what happens. And my dad was one of the people who visited, air quotes, I guess. I don't know if he did or not, but there was some apology and there was some explanation and there were some interesting things and, um, and just a conciliatory person, being, spirit, whatever. And there was an apology and I didn't, and I didn't need it. You know, I, I, I felt like I'd already gotten it, you know, through this work and what I'm doing, but, um, but you know, that guy, I think is, is around as long as, it, even if not in the spirit world, as long as we talk about him, you know, so I still kind of have that relationship with him. It's just a different one. And it's, it's a lot easier now. He's less chatty, you know, uh, you know, he's, he's still a weirdo, but you know, <laughs> I get it. I get it. I just, yeah. you know, I, I know that cause that obviously happened, what, like two years or so prior to your little uh, downfall, we'll call it. So I just assumed that maybe that had something to do with it. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it probably did on some level. It wasn't for me. I was right. just hopeless because that happened. My mom died or not died, but my mom and I were going through it. And then my girlfriend who I'd lived with. And I think, I think a lot of what I had been experiencing for my entire life, I was sort of projecting onto that one relationship also because I, I hadn't cultivated self-confidence, self-concept, self-worth either and that that in part was a was a direct and indirect result of of the experience I have with my dad. So I, I do think I think without I think indirectly you're you're probably right. Like it did have some effects, you know, on 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 my um, psyche and where I was in 2011 in crisis. Do, do you think that because you just talked about like uh, self confidence, self worth, that whole self love deficit area? Um, 
you know, like Will said, you, you have your hands in a lot of different areas. You know, you've been on Broadway, um, you know, books. Does, does any of that stuff help that you, that, you know, help you find that worth? Or is it something that you feel it's, it's, it's a different area? It's something that you have to inside, you know, feel and, and believe. I'm tearing up a little bit as I'm listening to you speak about that, because that's some work that I'm ongoing. And what I've had to do, yes. As are, so, as are we, Josh, as are we. That's why I'm asking, man. Yeah. So that to me is inside or outside in work rather than inside out work. And to me, what I'm learning and have continued to learn is that the inside out work, you need both, but the inside out work is a little more sustainable than the outside in. And so. Well said. That pr- being a producer, producing all that stuff, it, it, it helps, but it's not a forever help. It's a temporary thing. And so what I, and it, but it has given me the space because being a speed and like everything that's led me to this work, like I'm, I'm in a pretty decent financial space. And so now I have time to think and time to do the inside out work um, and time to think about, hey, your value is not because you're a producer. It's not the, it's not the books. It's not that it's, it's that you showed up for these people. It's that you loved on your niece and nephew this morning. It's that you uh, are doing this volunteer work. It's that we're having these conversations. It's that you are just, you just are, it just is right. It's not because of the other stuff. Right. So uh, that's constant ongoing, you know, I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You don't have to do hours 40 through 50 through 60 this week on work, you're still valuable, even if you don't produce as much this week. So that's an ongoing thing for sure. I I can say this from personal experience. What keeps me here is the legacy that I would leave behind should I die by suicide because my mother's attempted twice. Now you lost your dad and your granddad, and you've also had your own struggles and nearly ended your own life. And I'm curious to know now in this chair that you're sitting in, look, looking at us, what your view is on suicide versus what it was when you were a kid. Yeah, I think versus when I was a kid, I, well, for, it's, it's not about anything but the need to cultivate hope, right? So it's about, it's about the box that we live in and it's, it's how to cultivate hope. So my... I didn't understand it as a kid, you know, and and it ties into this idea that in our society, when we talk about suicide, and it's almost always erroneously, but it's you're either a a joke or a pariah. And that's probably, you know, because you have suicide buffalo wings and suicide hot sauce and you're running suicide sprints in school, which none of those correlate with the emotional pain of needing and feeling like you need or want to die. So I think we need to make changes around that. Um, individually and collectively and then uh, or you're a pariah right so like seven layers of hell and that uh, what is it Dante's Inferno or whatever uh, worse than pedophiles and murderers like the lowest layer of hell which isn't real probably but it still influences people's thought and uh, and and how they show up in the world and so worse than that you if you die by suicide as if like that's a sinful thing or or you're bad or whatever. So, so now to me, it's about, it's about compassion and and cultivating hope and being present. And it's, and it's totally this interdependent thing, right? 
Um, we need each other on, on so many levels. So we need to figure out and find more and more ways to cultivate interdependence. And then on an individual, so that's on a macro level. And then on a micro level, on an individual level. And then for me, since I can really mostly just talk about me, um, I'm, I'm constantly looking for ways to cultivate hope. And so sometimes that blinks into my head. It's like, there's these babies that live in your world that you love and that you know, my sibling, my sibling's children and what that would do and, and that added legacy and that trauma, um, whether they understand it now or in the future, it's still traumatic for them. Um, but, but it's not necessarily about, it's like doing the food work and the, and the acting work and the writing work and the, and the, and, and, and learning more about spirituality and like looking out and looking back, I'm looking out a window. You don't know what I'm looking. I'm like looking out a window. Um, uh, and, and just being like this in general is just a big fucking miracle. It's amazing. Like just being present, being here, being in this moment is on the spinning planet at the right amount of distance around this ball of, you know, uh, nuclear fire, whatever. Um, and that it all happened and here we are and we're doing this thing. Like that's a crazy ass miracle. And I, I just want to soak it in for a minute. Um, yeah. So there's like so, so many ways. So right now, so always it's like, how do I cultivate hope in this moment? And then how do I do differently and healthier and better? For, I want to know how the impossible project kind of came along and it's, it's, you're almost four books in now, right? Uh, or is five, there more? Oh, five five books. A couple in development that are probably going to take a while. Yeah. Yeah. So five at the moment. Wow, dude. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Mm. We had, um, we had Rob, we had Rob Lethan on episode ninety four for uncomfortably numb, and then we had the uh, incomparable Carl Wagon on for the fire inside on episode one fourteen. Man, what a that dude! It's incredible. How did so? How did that all come about? It started because I was realizing <clears throat> that my story was working, and I started to become really interested in how other stories were working, and also or, or would work. And then after I would do these speaking gigs. Um, and this was, this was between like, I started, cause I started doing this work in end of 2011. And then by like end of 12, 13, I was like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm realizing that all these people, a lot of people are sharing their story with me after the event. And it's like, they're celebrating, but sometimes they're like, I became a dad or a mom. Uh, my friend is struggling. I went through this kind of abuse and this is what happened. And they were visibly changed. And so was I, um, after after sharing that experience and that story that they had to, to, to speak up about. And a lot of times it was the first time that they had shared it. And then and then sometimes they're like, oh, I want to do what you do. Um, and I was like, well, I you know, and I started thinking about I was like, I blog. I was blogging a lot at the time, sorry, once a week for a couple of years, about three, a little over three years. Um, and I was like, so I know that I have somewhat of a marketing background. Um, I have somewhat of a producing background. And so I can start posting these as guest blogs and kind of seeing like how, what that means and what it does for them and for others. And there's a lot of positive response. And I was like, wait a minute, I put out my book, the gospel, according to Josh, a couple of years prior, I put it out in 2013. I was like, well, I have all this like producing knowledge about books and stuff. And then I was really interested in self-development and I was paying attention to chicken soup for the soul. And I was like, it's a good series but I don't need to learn about your three-legged dog that came back to you two years later. I'm sure it's a heartwarming story, but it doesn't really mean shit to me. Um, even though it does, it's meaningful to somebody. So that has value. But like, but I was like, I want to, I want to do something that's a little less surfacey 
And I want to do stuff that that's a little grittier and that ties into social justice and mental health and things like that. So I had this idea. So I reached, so I, so I started reaching out to the people that I knew and the people who I connected with. And then I started reaching out like, and so in the first book, which is, has the subtitle re-engaging with life, creating a new you, it has a butterfly on the front. We have an Oscar winner, a Tony winner, Tony award winner. Uh, we just have some amazing people. And so there's subcategories in the first one. And it's like LGBT, um, second acts and second chances, mental health, mental illness, or mental health and mental illness, suicide, and a few others. And it's so it's a thousand words or less. So it's about 600 to a thousand words of someone sharing their story, what they've been through, something traumatic and how they engage in life in the aftermath um, and what they learned. So it could be 5% hopeful or it could be 100% hopeful. And I curated it, cultivated it, edited it. Put them, put them together, and that was a success. Came out in 2016. Then we did another 50 story story volume in about 17, six, 14 or 15 months later. That was focused all on elements of mental illness, um, and that was a Changing Minds edition, which I kind of launched. That coincided with the launch of the curriculum that I that we talked about earlier. And then there's three books that I call that are in the lemonade stand editions and that's one that's the one that has rob and carl in it uh the third one in the lemonade stand uh but there's three of them they don't have a general purpose per se but they're 20 stories instead of 50 because i found it's really hard to get 50 people it's like herding cats um and so uh i had to you know so and, and the idea was like okay so maybe i'll put them all together at some point in their own volume i haven't gotten to that yet but um but these 20 stories, and so they, I mean, each of the three lemonade stands, they're just incredible. And the third one is probably the closest to a themed book because it's a lot of um, PTSD, trauma, fire service, cop. Um, yeah, a lot of first respond. Yeah, a lot of first yeah. responder stuff. Yeah, yep. I, it's and so proud of that book too because I, that was the first one. So the second, so to be honest with you, the second book, the second 50 story book, I, I say that I had a co-author. It's really my ex-partner who didn't do much and that's okay, bless her heart. Um, but this one, uh, The Lemonade Stand 3 with Kathleen, my friend Kathleen, that Robin, she was a true partner on this and she helped curate and bring in the stories and connected to the people because I didn't have the energy to do that. Um, yeah, big shout out to Kathleen because we know Kathleen. Kathleen is a yeah, friend of the it, show. Yeah, that's where we got that's where we got the books from was Kathleen. Yeah, yeah. Kathleen sent them to us and uh, super, she's super her, nice. Yeah, she hooked us up with Carl too. got Carl to get on and which was awesome. And so we big shout out to Kathleen. And actually, yeah. we she we she's talked about coming on too. she wasn't sure about but but that invitation is always open to her anytime man yeah she's yeah, a dude. good friend and that's we met through i was doing i was at bergen community college in jersey and her and her daughter were there in 2013 and that's how we met and my stuff resonated and then she's been just a, a friend and now a partner since then so yeah just a little backstory on that but lemonade dude tea. yeah dude that is awesome um yeah. And, and anybody who's listening that I reached out to in August about from the lemonade stand that wants to come on, that invitation is still there. I just got really busy and I haven't been able to work to put it together yet, but I'm coming back to you people. I promise the whole thing about you finding purpose at a young age. And did you realize at that age that creatively that the arts was, was your, was, did you feel it was a purpose or was it that it filled your cup up so much that 
you didn't realize that it was a purpose or did you instantly know that that was where you should be in one form or another? I knew it was where I was supposed to be. It filled up my cup. Um, and it was an escape, you know, it was like, um, it was a place where I felt like I could connect. Like I wasn't ready to connect to all parts of myself either, but I was like, I can be the most myself here. Um, I get to sing and act and then be part of a community. And then I also didn't have to be around the toxicity that, that was, you know, present at home. And, uh, and it was, yeah, but it, 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 without the words at the time, I think it was just like, I need to be here because it's fun. It makes me feel good. And it might be my way out. Yeah. Did, did that add to the toxicity at your house, your, your artistic create endeavors because i i sense and maybe i'm not sensing this correctly but obviously there was a lot of problems between you and your dad and your dad mm -hmm. obviously took a lot of stuff out on you was that did he view the arts as unmanly or something or was it did, did it did that like play a part in things like was that toxic masculinity shit you know what i mean yeah yeah i think partly yeah i think partly he didn't want to give me rides to places because like he had an eye disease. He also was like, I don't think he wanted to have kids. So like, you know, doing that kind of stuff, which is, you know, not everybody wants to have kids. Like you want to get laid and you forget to, you know, wrap it up. Like, all right, dude, you know, I feel you. I haven't been there, but you know, um, <laughs> um that's a good outlook on it. <laughs> so um, he had, did he have like, uh, like other medical conditions as well? I think so. I think he had something else going on up to when, you know, near when he passed away. Like I know, like, so I, I, I have some kind of memory of him alluding to or talking about some cement, some physical health stuff. His, so he had retinitis pigmentosa, which means he couldn't see beyond, he had no peripheral vision. He couldn't see at night. And I didn't realize how profoundly that affected him physically and mentally and because he minimized it in a, in, a, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and sometimes that I think that's a in when you go too far on any healthy thing, it can, becomes unhealthy. So I think it started in a healthy place for him, I'm guessing, and then became unhealthy because he just wanted to marginalize his experience um, with that. But, yeah, so I think I think that that he probably viewed me as unmanly and probably, you know, because he did sing and he did. He did stuff at church, but it was church, and that was a different thing than than the rest of it. So, um, yeah. Well, I was. Did that play a part in your? Did that play any part in it too? Was there an extreme religious view? Like, okay, yeah, yeah. All right. I I was wondering if that may may have had some. Yeah. I was waiting for you to ask that question. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> my views on religion are tainted. So, yeah. I'm, I, you know, I'm coming back to it. I'm not a religious person, but I'm coming to, I, I've had to do a lot of internal work and be like, okay, this is doing something for this person or these people. And it's a protective factor and a coping and a, and a way to show up and feel good in the world. I don't need religion to do those things, but some people do. And, and I need to be okay with that because um, we all need each other and, and whether or not those things and those stories and those myths are true, um, it, it's not going to change. And I don't have anything to replace it for those people either. Like, I don't like, oh, and this is something, this is how you, you know, this is, it's going to rock their world too much and, and probably vice versa. Cause I could be completely wrong. 
it was the Presbyterians all along. We should have listened to the Presbyterians. I don't know, you know, like so when we will find out, I guess, when we die, but um, or maybe not. <laughs> well, do you but, think uh, do you think that that may play a part in some people's problems too? That that extreme view of leaving it all up to a higher power and not like not taking the work on themselves. Do you think that 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 actually is like part of the delusional, the God delusion that we have in a way? And I and I and I coined that term from Richard Dawkins because that was the book, The God Delusion. And I'm not I've come back to spirituality. I'm a recovering Catholic, as I will always say. I went to Catholic school. I did the whole Catholic thing. I sang in church choir. I love church, love singing in church. That was the whole reason I went to church was to sing. But I also realize that a lot of this leaves people empty and they leave them hoping and grasping onto something that when they really go to look for it, isn't there because they haven't created it themselves. So I'm wondering if that, if that has played a part into some people's delusion. I think there's a, I, I think there's a, uh, well, I just, I just wanted to say this real quick. I just, th I think there's also a certain role of, of connection that it plays as well. Cause you know, Joshua, you, you spoke when you were younger, you know, you, you were, more heavily involved in the church and i i think that could have had a, a positive effect on you you know what i mean in in some ways i think it, oh, it, it, did. it absolutely did and it left me empty with a lot of other stuff though sure because there's yeah, nothing yeah, yeah. because the problem that i see with it is is that that at the heart of it the myths and the stories are good but it's the underlying bullshit that comes with it and the fact that especially in in that form of it it's all about sin and it's all about us being born in original it's just like there's too many layers of it to say okay well i mean you really want to walk around feeling like you're a sin then that's up to you but i, I think, think it's how that's it's how it's presented probably you know certain people present it as this is this is the golden rule and this is the only rule that you must abide by you know which is which goes for anything you know what i mean but yeah i agree yeah, I so I think I think like like I said before, like anything healthy, when we indulge in it too much, it becomes unhealthy. And I think um, to me, religion, sex, chocolate, substances can all feed an addiction, right? What? Why am I here so much? Why am I constantly? Am I doing this for myself? Am I avoiding dealing with something? So the delusion, right? And then when that's when that's presented in such a way where where faith and spirituality religion is is the only coping tool and mechanism and skill well we're whole people we're physical beings we're spiritual beings and so to to say to someone that this is the only tool that you have well it's not gonna it's not gonna do them any good right um we need multiple multi-tiered layers of support and multiple tools and a, and a tool belt you know like you can't you can't fix drywall you know, yeah you can't fix drywall uh you know you're like i gotta i really need to spackle this but but all i all i have is a, all i have is a i don't know a, a a spoon or a or a screwdriver like i can't spackle with a screwdriver right and so like what but but you should be you're, you're spiritually right. deficient because you don't you're not using the screwdriver right well your fucking wall doesn't need the thing that my wall needs <laughs> you know i love so, it I love it, dude. You're part of the family, man. I love this. I relate. I, dude, I, I've been saying that for years, tool belts and tools. It's, 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 and what I've, what I've come to the conclusion of is it's never one thing that gets us stuck, so to speak. And it's never one thing that gets us unstuck.
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. So I can totally, I, I, I stand behind that, what you're saying. It's, you know, it's never, it's just never one thing. And, and I think to that alone, to, to put that burden or weight or whatever you want to call it on somebody, you know, I feel like you're number one, you're taking a bit of their autonomy away. And number yes. two, it's, 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 it's not feasible. It's not sustainable. You can't, it's not just one. There's never one thing, you know, there was never meant to be only one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're not honoring their personhood or their dignity by, by saying that this is the only thing. I also think that the other, and this is a, this is a macro issue and it's not a, there anyone's bad or wrong or well wrong in a sense, but not as a judgment call that when, when we constant. And so, yes, the community thing is great. And I love that. And that's that's the fellowship and all that stuff around various religious communities and stuff, Islam, Buddhism, whatever, that that community piece is great. The problem with any, being a part of any group, religious or not, is when we only hang out with one kind of group, then we live in an echo chamber and we're and we're, you know, confirmation bias. And so we're not looking at all angles and we're not having a full life. So we're not finding new coping mechanisms and tools. We're not self-examining from different angles. Even if we arrive back at the same conclusion, at least we have these different viewpoints to consider. So I think that's part of the issue too. And then we don't learn how to solve complex problems in healthy ways, complex problems such as mental health conditions and things like that. So I was just going to say that you're right. I think we've lost that ability for critical thinking. Yes. We have because we're surrounded by tribes, man. You got everybody going. Oh, you got to find your tribe. You got to find your tribe. Yeah, you find your community so you can expand your community. You don't find your tribe so you can just fucking wall it off and say, stay out because we don't like you. That's and that's that. And because you can't solve anything that way. Nothing, nothing gets fixed. Nothing you, you need. You need community involvement for everything. And that's where my I find personally that this community is one of the most open communities there are because it's, it's filled with so many different individuals in the mental health community and mental health. Again, mental health. We all have mental health. We don't all have mental illness. So let's get that right. Everyone has mental health. Not everyone has mental illness. Josh, um, it has been awesome having you here this morning, man. And just thank you for for what you do. And thank you for today, man. Thanks. Appreciate that. Tim, Will, you guys are doing good work. Uh, God's work. Uh, use that little G, big G, uh, wherever you little, are. Little G, little G for me, man. Little G, yeah. big O, little mm-hmm. D. That's Dog how I spell it. I, that's how I spell it. Because that O is where it's at, man. It's that continuing that that's what it's all about. So my head we're all tentacles of that thing so we're all a piece of it but i could be wrong like i said i think you're right i think you're right man no i think you're right i think we are all a piece we're all a piece of the same thing it's just that some of us have twisted views of what that thing is (laughs) get it together people um (laughs) let's build bridges that's that's my that's my work i think it's like let's build bridges let's call people in instead of calling them out find connection um and uh yeah man thanks thanks for what you guys do this is good good stuff good work yeah build bridges i like it yeah build bridges so joshua if you uh do you have a favorite or a least favorite word i uh, this uh, so the word m-i-s-l-e-d it's i don't know if it's my favorite or least favorite but it's a funny word to me because every time i read it i'm like what the hell does mizzled mean 
<laughs> Black people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, nice. Nice. That's one of them. I, that was pretty funny. <laughs> you got another one? Um, I think the word Philharmonic is another good one. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's got a nice ring to it. It's got a nice ring to it. It's got a nice ring to it. Like, I, I, does he prefer to be called Philip? Like, I don't know. Like, what's, I don't know this guy. Ah, um, so nice. No. He's trying out new material for you people right here. Thank you. Woo-hoo. We're going We're into the comedy. We're going into the comedy show now. Dad I, I, dude, I love, I find that stand up comedy is one of the purest forms of art there is. And especially if, like, you can, and you can basically tell when a comedian is being real and not being real. And I tend to find that most of them have to be real because that's the only way that they make a living. If they're not, then they don't, they don't succeed. So I find, do you find what is I, and it's, I, and I didn't mean to get off track because sometimes these things happen. So, and, and I'll forego my second question and I'll ask you this, where, do, where does stand up comedy stand in relation to say putting a one man show together as far as is there a different feeling that you get from either or do you get different insights from doing comedy that you don't from putting together shows or music they're kissing cousins for sure like i mean they're which is awkward Uh, (laughs) it depends on how hot your cousin is yeah they're gonna they're gonna be okay to have babies um (laughs) but um different grandmas but um uh they're similar so there's some similar and it depends on the kind of comedian that you are and the kind of because you can be you, you know there's the storytelling comedian there's sort of the boom 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 comedian there's the absurd comedian i think i'm sort of in the middle of like humor being a humorist a storyteller um and and some dry humor right um and, and that's a little bit of how I do the one man show stuff. So they, they kind of crisscross in some ways. And when I did the one man show more frequently, I, I remembered that, that there are elements of stand up in that too. To me, stand up is a little bit harder because you're supposed to be funny, you know, like, like you kind of have to be. And they, and, but what I realized too, is that that audiences want you to succeed. So just be with them. And what you can do when things aren't going well, maybe in a, in a comedy set versus like a scripted, you know, music night or, or you know, a, a music set or, or, or one man show is you can actually kind of call yourself out on it and work with the audience to kind of come back to a place of like, you know, we're, we're all aware that I'm sucking right now. I remember this Johnny Carson thing real quick. Uh, I saw him on VHS when I was a kid. It was like his best of you buy it on time life or something like that. And it was like, he was totally bombing his, his monologue opening a show. And then he pulls the boom mic down from above. And he's like, he starts tapping and he's like, clean up on aisle three, clean up on aisle three. And everyone knew like that was him kind of calling himself. Like I totally sucked right now, but everyone kind of came back and was on board. Like, Oh, we all had this moment together. So that's something that has stuck with me for a long time. Wow, that you know, and you just inspired a new question because I usually at this pod I ask about animals and stuff, and I because I love animals, we love our animals, but actually, I it kind of leads me to a new question. What is the what is one of the most embarrassing moments you've had performing? Oh, that's a good one. Um, oh, um, oh my god, as of recent, um, I 
I was just testing out new material in Philly. Like I was doing, and I was with a new friend. I was really nervous. And she, and she really likes to smoke weed. And, and I do at night to, you know, but I can't do it to be creative, but I was really nervous and we were hanging. And so I smoked a little before the, the set. And it was like a Sunday afternoon. And it was like, what am I doing? And, uh, and I got up and I just, I don't even think I knew what the hell I was doing. Nobody else knew what I was doing. I was like, all right, you learned a lesson. Don't be smoking that sticky icky when you got to do stuff important. So that was kind of embarrassing. Um, the only other, that I, I, it was slightly, I was like, I'm thinking of, of when I was in high school, um, I, uh, I hotboxed a friend in Hello Dolly. Um, I tooted under, under a set and he was not happy. And I was like, Oh no. And then we went on and we had to pretend like we're friends or we're about to do a dance number. Like, <laughs> that's all right. I do that to Tim. I do that to Tim every time we record. <laughs> he's like, he's like, well, hello. <laughs> that sounds like a, um, that sounds like, um, what's his name? Louis Armstrong with like COPD or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I was going for. So I'm glad I can you tell got that you're working, you're working through that impersonation. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the last question, um, if there was something that you could do or you would like to see done for mental health as a whole without any kind of restraint, what would it be? Oh, man, because there's so many combos, right? Like I'm trying to think of how I can sort of like a thousand wishes. Um, you know, when you're like, I'm gonna, uh, I, I would, I think that, um, I think that integrating mental health and social emotional learning and trauma informed into all elements of education and into systems, into prison, into, so integrating all of that into everything that we do, because I think it's, it'll just make for a more compassionate and interconnected existence for everybody. I was having this conversation recently. I was like, man, it's really hard to do self-development work. It's painful. It's hard. And I was like, man, what, what would life be like if, if, you know, cause I was kind of bitching and moaning to a friend and it was a brief thing. And I was like, wait a minute, I know exactly what it'd be like. It would be painful and harder and more difficult and I might not be here. Right. So I think, it, you know, when we do the work y'all, it's usually really harder at the beginning than the maintenance afterwards so be prepared for to take a little bit of a dip, maybe, you know, as you start to choose to do the work for self. Um, but know that it's so worth it. It's so worth it. Take the time, give yourself time and be gentle with yourself as you're getting going, because you don't know what you don't know. Wow. wow. That's the gospel of Joshua. Until next week. Be well. Be safe. Be a Oh, 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 oh,